is out of town, and um, so I'm delivering a message today, and it's a continuation a little bit from uh, what, we, what I spoke on last week, and I'm going to tie these two things together, but last week I talked about God's transforming love and, and that His love for us is unconditional and how that changes uh, the way that we live. So, um, I want to start, has anybody ever, has anybody read this book? By John Eldridge, I think I've got a, yeah, oh, it's got a different cover, that's probably a newer version, but it's Epic by John Eldridge, and I want to I start by, uh, read the first couple pages here, it starts by, by giving a quote from The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, it says, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. It's been quite a journey for Frodo and Sam when the little gardener wonders this. Ever since they left home, they've encountered more wonders and more dangers than they could have possibly imagined. The battle on Weathertop, the flight to the Ford, the beauty of of Rivendell, the dark mines of Moria where they lost their beloved Gandalf. Their fellowship has fallen apart. Their friends are now far away on another part of the journey. Into the shadow of Mordor, they've come two little hobbits and their cooking gear on a journey to save the world. It's at this point, Sam says, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. Sam could not have asked a better question. He assumes that there is a story, there is something larger goes on, going on. He also assumes that they have somehow tumbled into it, been swept up into it. What sort of tale have I fallen into is a question that would help us all a great deal if we wondered it for ourselves. It just might be the most important question we ever ask. What sort of tale have we fallen into? Okay, so I want to I start by admitting something. So remember, remember when you were a kid, and uh, you might have these like, fantasies about like a robber breaking in, and, and, and you're the person who is going to stop them. You're the one that's going to stand in their way. You know, maybe, maybe someone's holding a knife next to, next to one of your family members and, and then you pull off one of those crazy kung fu movie, moves to stop the bad guy and, uh, and, and rescue your family. You guys remember that? It wasn't just me, right? Come on. Come on. <laughs> okay, well, it's time to bring out the truth. Those fantasies never stopped. Come on. Come on, it's true. We just, we just don't talk about them. We don't, in public, start playing and pretending all of a sudden, randomly, like little, little five-year-olds might do. But come on, we, we still have them. Let's be honest here. We still want to be the hero. A little bit later on in this book, I'm going to read you another excerpt from here. And here's where we run into a problem. For most of us, life feels like a movie we've arrived at 45 minutes late. Can anybody relate to that? Something important seems to be going on, maybe. I mean, good things do happen, sometimes beautiful things. You meet someone, fall in love. You find that that work that is yours alone to fulfill. But tragic things happen too. You fall out of love, or perhaps the other person falls out of love with you. Work begins to feel like a punishment. Everything starts to feel like an endless routine. If there is is meaning to this life, then why do our days seem so random? 
What is this drama we've been dropped into the middle of? If there is a God, what sort of story is he telling here? At some point, we begin to wonder if Macbeth wasn't right after all. Is life a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing? No wonder we keep losing heart. We find ourselves in the middle of a story that is sometimes wonderful, sometimes awful, often a confusing mixture of both, and we haven't a clue how to make sense of it all. It's like we're holding in our hands some pages torn out of a book. These pages are the days of our lives, fragments of a story. They seem important, or at least we long to know they are. What does it all mean? If only we could find the book that contains the rest of the story. And that's the problem, is that we don't know what sort of tale we're in, and, and, and we, definitely know who, we definitely don't know who we are in the story. We have what I like to call an identity crisis. And I've, I've, I've spoken similar message to this one previously, and uh, I, it's, it's, it's a topic that's really near and dear to my heart, so I'm... Uh, uh, really want, taking, taking some concepts that I've spoken on before and adapting it to the series we're in. But, um, but we have an identity crisis. Because I believe that a large majority of Christians wonder this question, what sort of tale have we fallen into? Majority of Christians, unfortunately, have this identity crisis. They, they don't know who they are. And in fact, and this is my opinion, you're more than welcome to disagree, but I believe that the identity crisis is the biggest thing that holds back Christians today. Have you guys ever seen the movie Anger Management? I think, I think the movie's hilarious. With Adam Sandler, Jack Nicholson. And uh, Jack Nicholson, if you can believe it, is an anger management counselor. And Adam Sandler is ordered to go into anger management. And uh, during his fir- the first meeting, the, um, he's, Adam Sandler's character is asked the question, so who are you? And he responds with, well, I'm, I'm an executive assistant at a major pets product company. And he's interrupted by, no, no, I don't want you to tell us what you do. I want you to tell us who you are. All right, I'm a pretty good guy. I like playing tennis on occasion. Not your hobbies. It's simple. Just tell us who you are. If you can imagine this in, that, in Jack Nicholson's voice. Just tell us who you are. I'm a nice, easygoing man. Might be a bit indecisive at times. You're describing your personality. I want to know who you are. And then finally, out of frustration, he says... I just don't know what you want me to say. And then everyone's just shaking their head. (laughs) Very comical scene. But it raises an interesting question. Who are you? See, the answer to that question, I believe, has, has very serious implications. See, what I do, what my hobbies are, what my personality is, All of those things do not determine who I am, and in fact, I would argue that the opposite is true. Who I am will oftentimes determine what I do and what my personality is. So the question that we should ask, because we're in church, is what does the Bible say, right? (laughs) And hopefully, 
We should ask that all through our lives and not just in church. So one person might speak up and say, well, we're sinners. That's what we are at, uh, because we sin, and so at, at our core, we are sinners. Another person might, might speak up and say, well, well, hang on, we're, we're righteous. When Jesus died for us, we took on the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at us, he sees us as righteous. like that? <laughs> Are we sinners? Are we righteous? We've been um, going through a series on narratives, and uh, in, in, in this life, we're oftentimes fed narratives, stories about how things are, stories about who we are, and, and, and there are times that these narratives that we're told throughout our life conflict with what God tells us. But the narratives that we're fed our whole lives affect the way that we live. And we're oftentimes not even aware of those narratives in our life. We're not even aware of how they affect us, how they make us live. But they do. They're in the background constantly, affecting the way we interact with people, affecting the way we respond to things. You ever just blown up all of a sudden and you look back and be like, why did, that, why did I just blow up at that? What was it about that that bothered me? It's pro- there's probably a narrative somewhere in the background telling you something about yourself that caused you to blow up at that. So the narrative that I'm, I'm discussing today is, 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 is this, is the, the narrative that I believe the world tells us that we're sinners versus the narrative that God tells us we are righteous. So which one are we? Or, or, or are we some combination of both? And, and, and the problem that I'm going to submit to you with the idea that it's some combination of both is that I believe it gives way to this schizophrenic Christianity. One moment I'm righteous, the next I'm a sinner. One moment God's pleased with me, the next he's angry. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also 
by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So let's just think about this for a second, okay? So let's focus right here on this last verse that I just read, verse 19. It says, by one man, and if you listen to the previous portion of it, that person, that one man is Adam. By Adam, we were made sinners. So also by one man, Jesus, by his obedience, many will be made righteous. So, so question, what did we do? Look at this verse. What did we do to become sinners? Nothing. It was something that we were, were born into. Adam, through Adam's disobedience, we all became sinners. So what did we do to become sinners? Nothing. Nothing. See, here, here's, here's where the misconception comes in. If somebody steals something, we call them a thief, right? If somebody kills somebody else, we call them a murderer. So if somebody sins, then we think, okay, well, they're a sinner. But when the Bible talks about the word sinner, it's not referring to your actions. It's not referring to the things that you do. It's talking about your status. To be a sinner means that you are separated from God. That's what being a sinner means. And to be righteous means that you are in right standing with God. So, I'm going to stand up here right now and I'm going to make a bold statement and then I'm going to talk about it a little bit. My bold statement is this. I am not a sinner. Okay? I'm not. Now, understand what I mean when I say that. Do do, do I sin? Yeah, there are times that I sin. I'm a human being. But the moment I accepted Jesus into my life, he wiped my sin away, and he made me righteous. So when I make that statement, what I'm saying is, I am no longer separated from God. I'm in right standing with him. When he looks at me, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees the righteousness of Christ instead. Through one man, Jesus, I have become righteous. You have become righteous. Now, this has huge implications for us. Think about it. If a child is told his whole life that he's a failure, he begins to believe that he is a failure. And what does that cause him to do? Causes them to fail. In the same way, we are con- if we are constantly telling ourselves that we are sinners, what are we going to do? We're going to sin. <laughs> We're going to do the things that are, uh, uh, that, that are against God. We're going to do the things that separate us from God if we are constantly telling us ourselves we're a sinner. But if we realize that we're righteous, then over time our actions are going to reflect who we are. Now, this, this doesn't, this, God immediately makes us righteous. This hap, this is, that is an immediate action. But our actions changing is a, is a process most of the time. See, I'm 36 years old, and I have 36 years of bad habits. 
But here's the question. When we understand that we're righteous, what do I do when I, when, when I do make a mistake, when I do sin? Let's, let's, let's use an example. Let's say we talked about anger management. Let's say I have an anger problem. And someone cuts me off in traffic, and I just explode. I scream, I blare my horn, drive by the person, maybe I flip them off. Uh, I'm just, just, you know, hopefully we all agree that's not righteous behavior, right? So what should my response be after that? I walk away from that and I am like, oh, that was not right. I did not handle that right. See, I I think our typical response is to feel guilt and condemnation, right? Beat ourselves up over it. But Romans chapter 8, verse 1, oh, it's like that. I talked about that earlier. Romans 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is no condemnation. So if we're condemning ourselves, it's us that's condemning ourselves, not God. Condemnation does not come from God. So instead, my reaction should be, say, Lord, I'm sorry. I know what I did was wrong. It doesn't reflect it doesn't reflect who I am, who you've made me to be. I am righteous, and I now choose to walk back into who I am, a righteous child of God. That should be our response. You see, one thing, we got rid of that step of going to the tears and stirring up our emotions because we're really not sorry if we don't stir up our emotions, Right? Now, I'm not saying we don't have godly sorrow. We should. In fact, in fact, the moment that I'm convicted of something, the moment I, I realize I did not handle that right, is the moment that I have, I have godly sorrow. But we can immediately, we don't have to be like, well, all right, I'm going to have to really repent in my prayer time tonight or tomorrow morning. No, we can immediately say, Lord, I'm sorry. We can immediately turn from that. We can immediately walk right back into who we are, who God has made us to be, righteous. Because even while we were still sinning, we were still in right standing with God. That never changed. When Jesus was on the cross, he he made this statement. He said, it is finished. At that point, sin was taken care of once and for all. We are completely given for all of our past sins, all of our present sins. When we sin, the, the reason we never stop being righteous, the reason we can continue to walk in, in the confidence of who we are is because Jesus took care of it. That's amazing. That right there is the gospel. That right there is the good news. And that brings freedom. There's a, a book uh, by Joseph Prince called Destined to Reign um, that there, there has some really good points, points throughout the book, but he said, um, the old covenant of law, the, the old covenant of law is based on you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. 
while the new covenant of grace is the Lord saying, I will, I will, I will. It is clear that the emphasis and demand of the covenant of law is on you performing, while the emphasis and demand of the covenant of grace is on God himself performing. He will do everything on our behalf. In fact, because Jesus has already died on the cross, he has already done everything on our behalf. Remember, Christianity is done, done, done. Not do, do, do. Sorry. Whoa. Okay. I don't know. I don't know where it is. But. Is that it? Okay. There we go. Thank you. Jesus came to establish the new covenant of grace, and under this new covenant, God is no longer angry with you because his anger and wrath have already been exhausted on the body of Jesus on the cross. Now at this point, some people might have the question, the same question that Paul was asked when he wrote to the Roman church. And this question was, well, okay, so then based on that, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Like, if we just keep sinning? Um, and then that way we have a lot of grace. In other words, if God's already forgiven me all the sins I've committed and will commit, what's to keep me from continuing in my sin? By telling people that they are no longer under the law, that they are righteous in spite of their actions, aren't we condoning their sin? And my answer to that would be the same as Paul. Certainly not. Romans chapter 6, verse 2 says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? We're free from it. Joseph Prince says it well again. He says, I don't believe for one moment that a believer who has truly encountered the complete forgiveness of Jesus and the perfection of his finished work would desire to live a life of sin. It is his grace and forgiveness that gives you the power to overcome. Apostle Paul said, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. When you are under God's grace and his perfect forgiveness, you will experience victory over sin. Romans chapter 6 Verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34 says, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Ladies and gentlemen, the law condemns us. Now, I want to say something. There's nothing wrong with the law, the Old Testament law, there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, the law is perfect. But we are powerless to follow the law. Under the law, we are sinners because we fall short. But praise God, we're no longer under the law. We are under grace and according to, according to Romans chapter 6.14, that means that sin has no dominion over us. See? Romans chapter 6.14. Sin, sin shall not have dominion under you. It's time to awake to righteousness. And when we, and when we do that, and only then can we have victory over sin. Grace is the key 
to victory in our lives. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I, to, I brought the book with me, the Destined to Reign. There was a, in, in here, there, there, there was a testimony that I, I thought would be appropriate to read. And this person wrote a letter to, to um, Joseph Prince and said, Pastor Prince, I just want to share with you what the grace of God has done for me in my life. I was born into a Christian family. When I was growing up, I was forced to attend church. All I learned was that Jesus hung on the cross, but why he was there, I did not know. I hated going to church. My parents would force me to go and reprimand me, but it didn't help. In high school, I got involved with gangs, started to smoke and drink heavily. I started to live a life of crime, stealing, vandalizing, getting into fights. I became rude, hot-tempered, and extremely vulgar. My parents, teachers, and school counselors tried to help me, but nothing worked. It wasn't long before I was expelled from school and became a full-time gangster. I frequented the pubs every day, became a heavy drinker and smoker. Most of my friends were drug addicts. I got involved in armed robberies, and I saw my life going into a downward spiral. It went from bad to worse, and there was a cry within me for things to change. This whole bondage by the devil came to an end just a few years ago when I got to know this girl named Faith. Even though Faith was a new believer, she would tell me about the grace, mercy, and love of God and why Jesus died for me. I was amazed at her knowledge of Jesus. I was born into a Christian family, but this new convert knew more about Jesus than I did. She then brought me to her church uh, called New Creation Church, and as he began to minister, I felt a warmth all over me, and I started to cry. I felt like I was falling in love, but I did not know with whom. It was a love beyond the love of man, and I raised up my hands and said the sinner's prayer at the end of the service. From that point on, my life was no longer the same. Jesus began to deliver me from so many bondages. I heard you share a testimony about how another church member was delivered from a smoking addiction by confessing the righteousness of God, and I started to do the same. I would smoke and confess that Jesus had taken my smoking addiction on the cross and that he still loves me even though I was still smoking. Amazingly, two weeks later, nine years of heavy smoking and six years of alcoholism were gone. And as time went by, Jesus delivered me from the gang that I was in. I was even delivered from many other bad habits like my addiction to pornography. I truly became a new creation in Jesus Christ. Everyone who knew, knew me was shocked at my transformation. I was even healed of a 10-year urinary problem. I used to have to go to the bathroom many times in the night, but now I am able to sleep through the night in peace. Pastor Prince, what man could not do, Jesus did. It was the grace of God that changed me. I did not deserve it, but I thank God for the blood of Jesus. He took me just as I was, and now I am a child of God. When I heard you preach the grace of God, I did not go out to start a new gang, smoke, drink, or sleep around. It is a lie that when God's grace is preached, people will go out and sin more. In fact, it was His grace that changed a wretch like me. I believe that God has blessed me to be a blessing. I want to spread this good news that only Jesus can make a difference in our lives. Wow. The fact is, grace changes us. Now again, oftentimes it's not an, our, our actions are a process. It's not always an overnight process that we're immediately our actions change. It, it, that can be a process. But grace 
does change. And the more that you view yourselves as righteous, the more your actions are going to reflect who you are. We're no longer sinners. We are righteous. When we came to Jesus, we became righteous. So last week, I, I, I delivered the sermon, about the, the sermon about the transforming power of God's love. And when we truly recognize the depth of God's love for us and see that it is completely unconditional and has nothing to do with anything that we do, our lives naturally change. These two sermons, the one that I preached last week and, the, and this week, they're, they're so intertwined because they're both ultimately about our identity. Which is why I decided to do them back to back. I felt that they really flowed one to the other. We need to understand how deeply loved we are before we can truly grasp that God declares us righteous. Because if you don't understand how much God loves you, you're never going to be able to claim the righteousness of Christ over your life. You're just not going to believe it. You might, you might believe it in your head. You might understand it in your head, but you're not going to believe it here. One thing about, when I prepare for a sermon, one thing I like to do before just diving in and, and, and starting to, to write what I want to say is, is I, I really start by asking God what it is that he wants to minister to us. What is it that he wants to speak to you and to me? And as I prayed about that, I just, I just felt that the Lord was saying that many, many people in this room are living defeated lives. The devil's been able to, to keep so many of us down to the point where, where we don't even see spiritual warfare when it's there. We just assume that it's just part of our lives. Man, people in, our, in our, people in this community get attacked. We get attacked, and we oftentimes don't know it. I don't know about you, but I've, I've felt some attack lately. And I don't think that that's a coincidence that that happens, man. We've seen God do amazing things in our midst, and God is, God is continuing to use a small church, Oasis Vineyard Church. God uses us powerfully. He uses us individually. He uses us as a community. And did we really think that this would happen, that we would be able to be used by God without the devil fighting back? James 5.16 says, oh, never mind, I guess I didn't put it up there. I'll read it to you. It says, the prayers of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's why I believe this sermon is very timely right now, because if we're going to stand up and fight back, we have to understand who we are. We have to believe that, that you, you have to believe that, you're the, that you are righteous in God's eyes. Because if you don't, then you're not going to believe that your prayers are going to be powerful and effective. And you'll be powerless to fight back against the enemy. Can I have the worship team come forward? God wants to show you how he sees you. 
And through that, he wants to change you from the inside out. So as we uh, sing this next song, just, just reflect on that. Just, just think about, just, just let the Lord speak to you. Before we do that, I do want to go ahead, ushers, if you can go ahead and pass the bags. Lord, I just pray a blessing over this offering. Lord, would you multiply it and allow us to use it for your kingdom? We are a, a giver-supported church, so this is how we continue to do the things that the Lord's called us to do. So, um, And go ahead and put your connect cards in there, too, while this is going around. But as that's going around, I just want to say a prayer over everybody here. So, Lord, I just pray that you would reveal yourself to each heart in this room. Lord, that we would stop seeing ourselves as the world tells us we are, as we tell ourselves that we are. Lord, but that we would start believing what you say about us. Lord, would you change our hearts? Renew our minds, Lord.